This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Seth Maskett who is the author of the very recent book, Learning from Loss, The Democrats 2016 20 to 2020. This is published in 2020 um, by Cambridge University Press. And this is a really fascinating and deep dive in terms of the research and the methods in understanding why narratives are important for political parties in particular. Um, but I will let Seth talk to us about that. I'd like to welcome Seth to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project in the shape that it took. Thank you so much for having me on, Lily. Um, so this was a book I um, had an idea for back in 2016. Um, a lot of my work up until now has focused on uh, political parties, usually at the state level. Um, I have prior books on polarization in California and on uh, party reform movements in various states. I really, I wanted to focus a book on uh, a national political party. And I was interested in essentially capturing a party making a decision across a four-year uh, presidential cycle. Um, you know, there's, there's a, I mean, there's plenty of good books out there that examine the decisions that parties make. You know, the uh, you know, what stances to take or, or who to nominate or um, what issues to uh, dig in on and what issues to abandon and, and things like that. Um, but all those books tend to assume that some sort of a conversation takes place within a political party um, about, say, why they lost the last election or why they won another election and, and what they need to do for next time. And I wanted to capture that conversation. Um, when I had the idea for this in 2016, I was assuming this was going to be about the Republican Party. Uh, that is, they uh, had a really unusual nomination process that year at the presidential level um, when they came up with Donald Trump, despite him not having almost any elite support within the party and a really weird set of debates and primaries and caucuses. Um, and they seemed to be on the path for a loss at the presidential level. He was trailing uh, to Hillary Clinton by pretty substantial margins. Um, and I just figured, well, you know, after they lose, the Republicans are going to have an interesting moment of self-reflection coming up. Obviously, it didn't pan out that way. Uh, so, uh, and Republicans haven't really had that discussion yet, uh, but Democrats have. And they had another interesting discussion in that they, they lost a very narrow election and needed to figure out what they were going to do for next time around. So this book was essentially uh, a chance to dig into that. And I spent, um, uh, I looked, I examined different aspects of the Democratic Party, uh, broadly speaking. Um, a lot of the time I, I focused on uh, Democratic activists in the early contest states, uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada and South Carolina, as well as a bunch of Democratic activists in DC, um, trying to get a sense you know, from fairly early on in this period, you know, starting in early 2017, trying to get a sense of why they thought Hillary Clinton lost um, and then sort of who they were leaning toward. Um, you know, that is, you know, what is their interpretation of that election leaning them to think about for 2020? I also look at a, a number of other different facets of the party. I follow a lot of reform efforts as they work their way through the, the Democratic National Committee, um, their efforts to reform superdelegates and, and other things. I, I look at campaign finance patterns and, and other patterns. Um, but it ends up being kind of a, a dissection of how they, you know, how Democrats started with the largest and most diverse field of presidential candidates in history and came up with uh, Joe Biden, an older moderate white guy. Um, and, uh, it ended up being a, a pretty fascinating journey. And, and I sort of wanted to ask you, um, to start 
uh, this conversation a little bit um, with this question that you pose or the the assertion that you make um, that if one controls the narrative, you control the future. Um, and I, I'm in the middle right now of teaching Machiavelli's Prince. And it sounded very much like Machiavelli to me when I read that. Um, and yet I study narratives and I'm really intrigued by how you weave through your analysis, the issue of understanding the narrative, um, particularly in politics. Can you talk a little bit about how this is kind of a framing mechanism for this study? Yeah, I focused a lot on narratives in this. And thanks for referencing Machiavelli there. I thought, you know, I sound a little bit like a Bond villain when I was writing stuff like that. But um, it is, uh, I was interested in the idea of how uh, political, political actors, you know, political activists and others within a party, you know, how they interpret a loss, and then essentially what that leads them to do. And, you know, importantly, I wasn't really interested whether those narratives were true or not. Um, honestly, it's, it's, it's very hard to decide whether, you know, an interpretation of an election is true or false, um, particularly when it's a very close one like 2016 was, you know, a lot of ideas have some, have some truth to them. But, you know, I was drawing a lot on, um, uh, Margie Hershey's work, uh, her her um, early work on you know specifically looking at like the 1984 presidential election, um, where you know Ronald Reagan obviously beat Walter Mondale by a landslide that year, but then she did an analysis of this where she looked at media narratives after that election. Um, just look at how you know how news uh, you know op eds and, and news stories describe why Ronald Reagan. Uh, beat Mondale, and I think there were there were dozens of different narratives early on, and you know, when in the week or two following the election, um, ranging from everything like uh, you know Reagan was just a better campaigner, or um, Mondale was unappealing, or his about his 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 uh, you know Mondale's pledge to raise taxes, or, or anything else, um, and eventually those kind of narrowed down into just a handful of of narratives, and I was really curious about that. Um, obviously, there's there's been work done on narratives in, in other contexts before, um, you know, like Julia Zari's book um, on mandates is essentially, you know, part of that same literature. Um, but I was particularly interested in the idea of, of the loss narrative. That is, you know, a, a, a political party that wins doesn't necessarily have to rethink a whole lot of things. They just kind of assume that whatever they did last time was the right thing to do. Whereas a party that loses, um, especially when they didn't expect to lose, is is due for some reflection. And, and the moment they lose, there is an attempt by people within that party to define the purpose for that loss, to define what that meant and what it causes the party to do. And this actually, you know, this this ties into um, Phil, Klinkner, Phil Klinkner's book, um, The Losing Parties, where he digs into um, you know, parties... Uh, having conversations after uh, losses at the presidential level from the 1950s through the 1990s and just sort of, you know, just details what some party leaders were saying uh, about those losses. And it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting study and, and, you know, sort of focuses on what those losses kind of lead those parties to do, whether it's to rethink, you know, on the Democratic side, it's often to like rethink how they do nominations or, or make some other reforms. On the Republican side, it's usually a decision to reallocate some campaign resources to different parts of the country. Um, but, I, you know, I wanted to dig in on that at the um, uh, among Democrats in, in 2016. And what you really see is, um, in some ways, a similar set of narratives that have emerged uh, every time the Democrats lose over the past 50 or 60 years. That is that, you know, there, there's always some group of more conservative leaning Democrats um, within the party who say, you know, the problem was we were too much in the thrall of the feminists or we were too much in the thrall of Jesse Jackson or, or you know, some version of that argument um, suggesting that the party needs to recalibrate uh, with a rightward move. You know, th this wasn't the only narrative. Um, that came out of 2016. There were there were actually lots of them in competition with each other. And importantly, the party never reached anything like a consensus about 2016. Um, they are still pretty um, 
still pretty messed up about that and still pretty confused. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the collection of narratives that sort of, you know, led them in a specific direction, um, that, that resulted in, in Biden's nomination. And I mean, I, I do remember back in my somewhat youth, um, that there was a lot of discussion when Ted Kennedy was perpetually running for president. Um, the party of Ted Kennedy wasn't the democratic party of everybody else. Um, and that that was, you know, again, as you say, it's the sort of the the regular um, understanding that Democrats have of the disconnection between the elites who are running for office and the rest of the party or who may be the party. Um, but you said that the the fact that there is no consensus about 2016 is what makes your your research and your dive into sort of the various attempts to suss out um, people's understanding of 2016 as, as, you know, the heart of the book. And so I wanted to ask you a bit about the different kinds of approaches that you use to get at some of this information. You did experimental studies, you did interviews. It's a multi-method approach, but in sort of not necessarily a traditional political science way. Yeah. Um, I, I, really did, I wanted to approach this from a number of, you know, different methodological approaches, as well as examining lots of different parts of the party, you know, whether we're talking about activists or donors or DNC members or Democratic voters, uh, frankly. So, um, you know, I, I, to the extent I can examine a whole party, that's what I, that was really what I was trying to do here. Um, the... Uh, Again, the, the thing I probably spent the bulk of my time on with this was the activist interviews. And a lot of the results of that simply came out from just lengthy conversations I had with them, you know, opening with the question, why do you think Hillary Clinton lost? That in itself could be like an hour long answer. Um, people have a lot of opinions about that. People were honestly, when I was talking with them, they were really wrestling with it and trying to decide, um, you know, it, it was for many Democratic activists, a very disorienting election. And they didn't fully understand why it had come out w the way it did. And they were, you know, struggling um, to to come up with answers. And so, you know, a lot of that was just, you know, I spent some time just doing content analysis of those interviews, um, you know, just digging through transcripts of these very lengthy interviews, um, trying to categorize which you know, which of the various narratives people came up with. I, I ultimately boiled it down to like, you know, roughly eight different narratives um, about Hillary Clinton's loss that included things like uh, the campaign itself was flawed. You know, it, it was it was allocating resources in the wrong way or it was it was campaigning incorrectly, running bad ads. Uh, uh, there were some, you know, there were narratives about the messaging uh, narratives about Hillary Clinton specifically, that she was a, a poor choice for candidate, um, or that uh, Donald Trump had uh, strengths that they had underappreciated at the time. There's sort of this identity politics narrative, this idea that Democrats spent too much time advocating for underrepresented groups and not enough reaching out to working class whites in, in swing states. Um, you know, ideas about... Uh, uh, other candidates like Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein or, you know, sort of exogenous uh, actors like uh, James Comey or uh, or um, or or even, you know, Russian interference. Um, and I just try to categorize things that way. But I also did um, I have kind of a content analysis of news coverage as well, you know, looking to try to plug news coverage into the to the same narratives to see how many news stories explaining uh, the 2016 election, you know, fall into those narratives. And, and I find, a, honestly, a similar pattern among news coverage in that there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of theories that emerged among political reporters shortly after 2016, and they never really converged on a story. Um, I, I compared that with 2012 and 2008, where, you know, you see a, a fair number of narratives emerge quickly to explain an election result and then converge very quickly within a couple of weeks or a few months on, on kind of a, 
just just a handful of narratives. And that convergence really didn't happen after 2016. Um, you know, even even seasoned political reporters a year later um, uh, had had less of an idea of why 2016 happened than they did just in the weeks after. Um, so yeah, there was there was that methodological approach. There was uh, you know some. Some serious number crunching with uh, donation patterns to examine factionalism within the party, um, and uh, and then there was a survey experiment in there as well. I did with um, uh, Paviel Haynes, um, who was a uh, postdoctoral scholar uh, in in the Center on American Politics that I direct at the University of Denver, and uh, she's now at Rollins College in Florida. But she and I um, wanted to examine kind of the impact of these post-election narratives on, you know, potentially new voters. So what we did, we we designed a a survey in which um, we, you know, we had a a large sample of people. Um, Half of them, we showed this, what we call the, the identity politics election narrative about 2016. You know, that, as we said, you know, Hillary Clinton spent spent too much time advocating for underrepresented groups and, you know, not enough, uh, to reach out to working class whites. Um, and that's why she lost, you know, half saw that half, half didn't. And then we asked people, um, you know, a series of questions about what type of candidate they might like to see as the democratic nominee for 2020. You know, this, this was a group of Democrats. Um, we, we were asking these, these questions too. And we found, uh, you know, generally speaking, that those who saw that identity politics narrative became um, more interested in nominating a white person for president. They became more interested in nominating a man, more interested in nominating a moderate. Um, and that effect was particularly true among white women and among uh, black respondents, uh, both men and women. Um, you know, that is... Uh, white men already uh, had tended to prefer a relatively moderate white man. And this, you know, this, uh, this little narrative didn't really change their views all that much, but it made others uh, in the sample uh, move more in that direction toward wanting to moderate a moderate white guy, you know, so that, that, you know, we, we didn't use names in there. We didn't say this means Joe Biden or anything like that. But survey experiments like that, um, you know, tended to reinforce this other message in the book that, you know, that kind of message, that kind of narrative coming out of 2016, um, it influenced people. It influenced the Democratic race and made people more likely to nominate someone like Joe Biden. And and I mean, it certainly is a lot of what the discussion is throughout the book in terms of the invisible primary and trying to suss out what is going on among the party actors, as you note, not just elites, but organizers in some of the early states um, and donors and so forth. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, you're talking about this sort of narrative of the message of 2016 and how that role influence the invisible primary that you say starts the day after started the day after the election and goes <laughs> until the first votes are cast in Iowa. So I think this is where, um, you know, my book has is it sort of operates in the shadow of, uh, you know, an, an, an important book, uh, um, the party decides, uh, uh, Cohen, Carol, Noel and Zoller's book, uh, from 2008, um, you know, of course, you know, one of the, uh, one of the leading books about presidential nominations right now, um, where, you know, they, they focus on the decisions that, that parties make about whom to nominate. And, um, I, that was definitely a framework I was working within for this book and, and curious basically if that, you know, if that's theory still held. Um, but you know, the, the sort of additional wrinkle I was bringing to the table was this idea that a party is not um, just deciding among candidates, but it's deciding about these narratives and that the competition for these narratives is actually a very important thing that that goes on within a party um, during a, a presidential election cycle. Essentially, what a party is trying to do um, in that long and invisible primary, you know, theoretically from 
the day after it loses one presidential election to, um, I guess, to, uh, you know, the Iowa caucuses in the next one is they're trying to balance, you know, really two sets of things. One is, um, you know, figuring out what exactly it is they want as a party, you know, in terms of in terms of policy. Um, and, you know, and related to that, you know, which candidate they think can deliver that for them. Um, and also figure out, um, you know, what is the lesson of the last election in terms of who can win elections? Um, they're constantly recalibrating. They're constantly trying to figure out how much can, you know, how much of the things that we care about, can we get and still get into office? So, you know, we, we see, you know, historically parties kind of wrestle with this, you know, there was a a, kind of a familiar lesson in the, uh, in the 1960s and 1970s, where you saw, say, you know, the Republicans nominated Barry Goldwater in 1964. Um, He loses by a, you know, roughly 20 point landslide. And there's kind of a conversation within the Republican Party in the, in the years after that, you know, with the implication that, wow, we nominated someone too radical for the country. Um, the, the country wasn't interested in that message. We need to rein our activists in someone if we really want a chance of winning. And then sort of, you know, calculating, we can get a lot of the things we care about with Richard Nixon, uh, but he is seen as a somewhat more moderate candidate. And then they win narrowly with Nixon in 68. Uh, Democrats go through a similar process after they they nominate George McGovern in 72, they also get wiped out um, by a r- roughly a 20 point margin and then recalibrate with Jimmy Carter four years later, um, you know, with the, the lesson being if we can rein in our activists somewhat, nominate a more moderate candidate, we can still get a lot of the things we care about. Um, but we get but we get in, um, you know, we we can nominate someone successfully that way. Democrats went through this whole process in the 1980s as well. Um you know, first losing hugely with with Walter Mondale, recalibrating somewhat with Mike Dukakis in '88, but still losing, and then recalibrating further with Bill Clinton in '92 when they when they get a win. And and again, this is you know that moderation is not necessarily the reason for the victory, but it is certainly a a persuasive uh, framework within the party that is you know people tend to believe that that's why they won, and you know so they're trying to you know, always figure out that balance. So coming up with a narrative for why they lost in 2016 is really important for figuring out how they calibrate for 2020. That is, you know, figure out what it is they care about, what it is they still want to fight for. Um, But also, um, you know, who it is they think can actually get into office. And 2016 really, you know, was was very disorienting in that sense. Um, Democrats had nominated, you know, obviously some within the party had been concerned in 2008 when the when they nominated the, uh, you know, the the first major party black candidate um, uh, as a party nominee, and uh, you know, some had were concerned that the the country might not vote for Barack Obama simply because of the the color of his skin. And he won. He won twice, you know, winning, uh, you know, not only the popular vote, but uh, a majority of the popular vote twice, a rare feat. And so they, you know, a lot of Democrats came through that thinking, okay, we've, we've sort of figured this out. The country is, is ready to be pushed uh, in this direction a little bit. And that, you know, they had the idea that, um, uh, the country would elect Hillary Clinton too, you know, just based on years of polling, based on how she was doing in 2016 and, and the years prior to that. And then it turned out, you know, the the country just didn't, you know, didn't vote for her in big enough numbers that she won uh, the, the Electoral College. And so there was a big fight to understand that. There were some within the party who simply wanted to say, um, you know, the, the problem was identity. Um, they, you know, the, the country wasn't prepared to either vote for a woman or vote for a feminist or, um, or vote specifically for Hillary Clinton. Um, uh, you know, someone who, uh, Fox news and other conservatives had been demonizing for, you know, nearly three decades at that point. Um, but coming up with that answer proved really important for that calculation, um, you know, for that decision within the party about, you know, understanding just what the electorate would accept. 
um, and allow them to get into office. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, and so I wanted to ask you um, to follow up on that a little bit uh, in terms of the lessons of the last election being one of the narratives that the party wrestles with, particularly when they lose. As you say, when you win, you just say, okay, well, we did that right, so let's mostly do it again. Um, but when you lose, you try to figure out why that loss happened. Um, at the same time, as you note that the ideology of the party is one that may be in tension with some of the narratives around the loss. Um, and in your book, you, you're sort of threading both of those sort of narratives or frameworks around how the party then gets to Joe Biden as right. the nominee. Um, and, and so if you could sort of talk about how you see the pieces sorting out, because you also note that while there are some factors about Biden's nomination that seem inevitable, there are lots of others that make it seem not. Yes. Um, so it's interesting because in the uh, so in the framework of uh, the, the party decides a lot of that calibration uh, by a party after an election loss, you know, f figuring out, um, you know, exactly what they care about and exactly, you know, who they think can get in. A lot of that is framed in terms of ideology. Um, you know, that is, you know, the Democrats are deciding they, they, they want to be as left as possible and still get into office essentially. And the conversations that I had with activists, um, in the wake of 2016 didn't necessarily focus on ideology all that much, at least not very explicitly. Uh, there were very few people saying, um, you know, that, that Hillary Clinton was too far to the left. To win, um, you know that she had too radical a message, and and we need to, um, you know, dramatically rethink, uh, you know, the party's platform in that sense. Um, you know, this this ties into somewhat about you know what exactly ideology means within the Democratic Party. Um, you know, uh, thinking somewhat of uh, uh, Grossman and Hopkins' work on on the asymmetry between the two parties, where they kind of frame the Republicans as a very ideological organization, and and Democrats as an organization that's that's really focused on groups um, and the the placement and, and competition among those those various interest groups. And and as I described in this book, I, I tend to see you know the the you know competition among groups as a form of ideology with uh, on the Democratic side. Um, that is, you know, Democrats. The main thing that they're interested in is representation, in egalitarianism, and in making sure that um, you know lots of different identity groups within the Democratic Party feel welcome. Um, that the ones that are suffering are are, are helped. Um, uh, that you know underrepresented groups get represented better, um, and that's a form of ideology. Um, so, as I saw it, you know, one of the you know, one of these narratives coming out of 2016 uh, had to do with um, identity. It had to do with, um, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, both, uh, you know, both in terms of gender and in terms of race. Um, it was a it was a very racially conscious election um, that, you know, some came out of that election feeling that the party had pushed too far in the direction of identity, that Hillary Clinton had been too explicitly, um, you know, I mean, part of her lifelong identity is as, 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 as an advocate for feminist concerns. Um, but also that she was too explicitly, um, advocating for, um, you know, in, increased representation for underrepresented groups, people of color, the LGBT community, women, and so forth. And that, uh, this was, of course, like essentially like the core mission of the Democratic Party over the last few decades, um, that they had to rein that in somewhat, that this is the thing 
that, you know, as essentially the party's core mission, this is the thing they have to sacrifice a bit of in the name of electability. This is the thing that they, um, uh, you know, they, they essentially, they're essentially negotiating with the electorate over. And, you know, this, that wasn't the, you know, unanimous, um, narrative among the people I spoke to by, by a long shot. There were a lot of people who thought actually, you know, uh, maybe the Democratic Party should have been more explicit in trying to champion underrepresented groups. And that um, the fact that they weren't was a reason that, say, black turnout was down somewhat um, in a number of key states in the upper Midwest or, um, you know, that some parts of the party were less enthusiastic. But this was a, you know, this sort of identity politics concern was was really a, a pretty persuasive narrative for many in the party. And, you know, one of the arguments I make in there is that if you come away from 2016 thinking that, you know, the problem was the party ran bad ads or they'd simply nominated the wrong candidate or, you know, they were devoting resources to the wrong parts of the country, those are fixable. Um, you You can change those for the next election without needing to dramatically rethink who you are as a political party. If you come away thinking that, you know, essentially the party's core mission of, of helping underrepresented groups, you know, of, of trying to uh, level some of the, some of the inequalities in American society, that that mission was actually hurting it in elections. Um, that can be a very disorienting message that, um, uh, you know, that's a, that's a very bitter pill to swallow. And that's one that Democrats, uh, you know, a lot of Democrats were really struggling with. And, um, so, you know, in many ways came out of that saying, you know, we need to go with something safe. And overwhelmingly they saw Joe Biden as a safe candidate. Um, you know, which is, which is, you know, it, it's an interesting idea. I mean, it, that's that's in some ways a an identity that he himself has has spent decades cultivating. Um, you know, if you follow Joe Biden's career, he's kind of relentlessly been at the center of the Democratic Party for like nearly fifty years now. I mean, he's just he's he's sort of very good at figuring out uh, you know who's to the left of him and who's to the right of him within the party. Um, you know, never associated with any particular form of radicalism, you know, tries to be pretty affable. Um, and, uh, he was, is generally seen as some, in, in some ways, sort of a, a safe place that the party could retreat to. Um, I use this, uh, a metaphor in the book of, um, Hillary Clinton being kind of the new Coke candidate. That is, you know, the party felt like they were trying something innovative with Hillary Clinton. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And when it failed, they really weren't sure why it failed. Um, some were like, oh, you know, is, is, is the flavor bad or did we market it poorly or did we misread the market out there? Um, and, you know, ultimately they decided it, it wasn't that important to figure out why they went wrong. Let's just get back to Coke Classic as quickly as we can. And Joe Biden was kind of the, the Coke Classic candidate. He was just sort of a... Um, you know, a, a, a version of their product that they felt had done well in the past. And so he was, he was sort of a logical choice in that direction. And, and at the same time that you note, he needed to make it through a field that was the largest and most diverse in history. Yes. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Which also reflects the sort of lack of consensus about why new Coke failed. (laughs) Um, yeah, so there, so I don't know if I wrote it in exactly these terms in the book, but, um, you know, thinking about Biden's nomination is, it's, 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 it's kind of fascinating. You know, when when I teach about, uh, party nominations in, in my, in my classes, I, you know, I, I, I tend to teach it in the sense that I think a lot of the media narratives about presidential nominations are, are, are wrong, you know, or, or at least somewhat off and that they frame it as a contest. That is, uh, you know, presidential candidates all have to do a certain set of tasks. They, you know, they have to visit all these early contest states. They, you know, have to flip pancakes in New Hampshire and, you know, eat a pork sandwich in Iowa and, 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 and 
compete well in debates and give good speeches and come up with good policy stances and things like that. And whoever does most of these things the best will become the nominee. And I, I, that's wrong. Um, and if you want a great example of why that's wrong, look at 2016. I, I don't think there's any of these tasks that Biden did the best at. Um, you could certainly find lots of other strains from different candidates. You could see, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders had, you know, I think by far the most enthusiastic set of supporters, you know, Elizabeth Warren could talk about policy, uh, far better than anyone else. You, you know, you had, um, you know, lots of different candidates could, could do certain things much better. Um, Biden was, you know, less a winner of all these contests than he was a choice. And that is, you know, I think what we need to be seeing party nominations as is it is a decision made by a, you know, by, you know, collectively by a party. And he was what they came up with as, uh, you know, someone who could who could win in the general election. And it's fascinating to sort of watch him over the course of, you know, 2019 when he gets in the race and, and early 2020, where he never really, you know, in terms of his like actual campaign performances, almost nothing he did was catastrophically bad. Um, although nothing was really, you know, outstandingly good either. Um, he, you know, he usually did serviceably well in most of the debates and most of his speeches. And I, I think his approach was mainly to not get caught up in some of the, um, symbolic, um, ideological battles that a lot of other candidates were. I mean, it was really, you know, if, if you listen to some of the, conversations being had among democratic candidates and some of the debates in 2019 and early 2020. Um, it, it's really kind of fascinating. I mean, you know, a lot of those candidates are really competing for, you know, what they saw as the kind of energetic left, um, who they expected to, to show up for the caucuses and primaries, you know, and you hear arguments for things like, um, reparations for slavery, uh, Medicare for all, um, abolishing ice, you know, and, 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 Things that you, I don't think you would have heard at a at a you know a major party debate just a few years earlier, um, were all of a sudden you know I don't know if they were the mainstream position, but they were being discussed pretty broadly, and Biden largely kind of ducked those fights to the extent he could. You know he he didn't want to take specific, um, you know he he didn't adopt any of the, like the major left slogans, but you know simply suggested he was open to talking about stuff, and he, he never really closed any doors either. Um, and that ended up being actually, a, you know, like a, a fairly smart position to take. You know, there were, again, a lot of people who were sort of looking for a safe position to fall back on. You know, they they thought he could be that guy. He didn't seem alienating to anyone. Um, there was a, a lesson that, you know, and this comes through in the book a lot, you, you know, both a lot of polling studies of Democratic voters in 2019 and 2020, as well as the conversations I was having with, with activists, um, all suggested like a, a surprising degree of pragmatism among Democrats, um, that, you know, to, to an unusual degree, Democrats were willing to, um, willing to give up a fair number of things that they believed in, um, in order to get a win. They were really, you know, unusually focused on defeating Donald Trump and getting him out of office. Um, you know, even to the point of nominating a candidate, they, they didn't necessarily agree with on most issues. They, they were really, you know, unusually focused on, on what they viewed as electability. And, you know, that's a, you know, a hot buzzword. Obviously I, I spend some time dissecting in this book about what exactly it means to consider someone electable and how, how difficult it is to actually prove any of that. But, um, you know, when you, when your focus is on electability, you, you can tend to fall back on some assumptions about what sort of candidates do well and what don't. And, you know, that, that was the kind of thing that, that, uh, that, that helped Biden's candidacy a great deal was the fact that the Democrats were, um, willing to give up a lot for the, for what they perceived as the most electable candidate. And, and in this way, you also start out the book by noting, um, not only that you initially intended to write this about a different party, um, but as you note, many people were surprised on election night um, in 2016, but they were also surprised that that um, Donald Trump got the nomination. 
And I, I sort of feel like throughout the book, you are, you are reflecting a little bit of that. Um, again, it's not about the Republican Party. It's not about Donald Trump's path to the nomination. But also it was a little bit like that happened to them. So what do we do for us? Yeah, I, that honestly, you know, Trump's nomination weighs pretty heavily over this book. Um, and, you know, when I first started this, I was, it, you know, many ways I was sort of wrestling with that, you know, with, you know, what that meant for party politics, uh, what that meant for kind of my own understanding for how party nominations work. And in many ways, Trump's nomination in 2016 is, is is the far weirder event than than Trump's victory in the general election. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of things that go into general elections. A lot of things come down to a, a coin toss in the end. It was, you know, if you if you sort of buy economic forecast models, it was likely to be a fairly close election to begin with. But um, he's not the sort of candidate that tends to win a party nomination, right? Uh, you know, a lot of uh, rich and famous people uh, think they should be president, but parties generally aren't open to that. And, uh, he, he managed to get through and that was, and that was just, just an unusual nomination. So I was curious coming out of 2016, um, uh, you know, basically does, does our understanding of party nominations still hold, um, the, you know, the, the model of the party decides really didn't explain Trump's nomination well at all. You know, that model tends to hold that, you know, people within a party, make something of a collective decision about what sort of candidate they want. And then they, you know, steer, uh, the party's voters toward that decision in the primaries and caucuses. And that really is not what happened on the, on the Republican side in 2016, essentially, you know, the party itself just did not make a decision. Um, you know, people who normally endorse candidates largely didn't endorse to the extent they did, they were kind of split between Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and, um, Scott Walker and a few others, and they just mostly sat back and, and let the voters pick. So, and on the Democratic side in 2016, um, it was a different lesson where, uh, you know, those who endorse, you know, essentially those who can signal the party's direction overwhelmingly signaled Hillary Clinton. And of course she gets the nomination, but you saw a really interesting challenge in Bernie Sanders where, um, he got almost no institutional party support. He got almost no endorsements in 2016, um, but nonetheless mounted a, a pretty serious challenge and stayed in the race and um, won a considerable number of delegates and won a considerable number of state contests and just sort of in some ways demonstrated in the, in the same way that Donald Trump did that year um, how much personal agency candidates have that, you know, even if the party doesn't want them, uh, they can still stick around. You know, the party can't really force them to drop out of the race. Um, and they can, you know, Sanders obviously didn't win the nomination that year, but he proved that he could still, he could stick around and he could deal some damage to the establishment and that they had to take him seriously. So, you know, I was going into this book thinking, well, what exactly does this mean for our, our understanding of nominations going forward? Um, are Democrats essentially for 2020 in the same place that Republicans were in 2016? And if you were to go back to like 2018 or 2019, you could certainly see an argument for that, right? Um, you had this huge, huge field of fairly high quality candidates, you know, lots of governors and senators and, you know, people with lots of credentials. Um, but, you know, the party not necessarily unified in a, in a direction. Um, you know, they hadn't really you know, as of early 2019, at least they hadn't really rallied around anyone yet. And it looked like it could be a, a fairly split nomination contest. And you, and you could see it unfolding for a lot of different candidates in a lot of different ways. Um, so, you know, there was one could certainly, at least at that point, imagine a world in which you have a, you know, party establishment that is very split, can't figure out what it wants. Um, someone like Bernie Sanders essentially manages to, to get through and become the nominee through sheer force of will. Um, uh, and, uh, or, you know, another candidate just emerging, you know, someone like say, you know, Pete Buttigieg, who was really very new on the scene, but was a good campaigner, was a good fundraiser. Um, and, you know, could just manage to convince enough people that he should be the nominee. Um, 
you know, without necessarily a lot of party backing. Yeah, you could, at least for a while, you could sort of imagine something like that happening. And that didn't happen at all. Um, what we saw was something like the party making a decision that, you know, that, you know, by the end of 2019, you know, the bulk of people I spoke to, the bulk of people who normally endorse candidates and, and others were backing Joe Biden. Um, I do this other analysis in there where I look at the behavior of uh, party donors, you know, those who both give to the Democratic Party and donate to presidential candidates. And by the end of 2019, they were overwhelmingly leaning Joe Biden. That is, you know, party money was was going in his direction. Um, and that was ultimately ratified in the uh, in the primaries and caucuses. It didn't look that way early on. And in February of 2020, of course, um, Joe Biden didn't, he did very poorly in Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, but by the time of South Carolina, by the time of Super Tuesday, um, the, you know, pressure put on um, candidates by, you know, party elites, essentially, by, you know, those who make endorsements and, and those who give money, uh, essentially forced other candidates out of the race. And or just, you know, you know, made them see that they had no other path forward and party very quickly coalesced around Joe Biden from that point on. And and so in that regard, <clears throat> you have the coalition, the the coalescing around Joe Biden as something that didn't seem inevitable. But as you note, a lot of indicators point in that direction. So I wanted to ask you this question, aside from, say, Donald Trump's nomination um, and so forth, what was surprising that you found as you were doing this research? So one of the things that, you know, I'm not, I don't know if surprising is, is quite the right word, but it was, uh, you know, that really stood out to me was how disoriented Democratic activists were about 2016, um, just how much that election really shook them, um, you know, not just politically, but like psychologically, um, you know, a lot of them, uh, you know, use terms like trauma to describe uh, their attitudes coming out of that election. That is, you know, essentially every indicator, um, you know, every, every political instinct that they had, every, um, every indicator they knew to, to trust about how politics works, told them a certain thing was going to happen in 2016, and then the opposite happened. And um, it really kind of messed them up. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that they, you know, that they, they, they chose wrongly, or that they, you know, they, um, you know, they, they chose in a compromised state or anything like that. But they were looking for a way to not go through that again. Um, you know, to, to avoid the, the trauma of that experience. And I, I think, you know, part of it was being wrong. And I think part of it was, um, you know, what Trump's presidency looked like after that, um, that they just, they found it so, um, you know, so aggressive and so odious. And they just, you know, they, they wanted to see, you know, figure out what they could do to avoid that happening again. Um, but, you know, the, the degree to which a lot of activists just described um, the 2016 experience in, in very personal terms as um, something that that really kind of messed them up and caused them to question a lot of key assumptions that they had about politics, um, you know, really, really kind of uh, stood out to me. And I mean, I, th I think that 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 sort of questioning key assumptions about politics is also a lot of what's steering your research as you're going through this in terms of trying to figure out, as you say, the analysis in say the party decides um, or in asymmetrical politics where we have an understanding of like how the parties work and what their dynamic is. Um, and then we have the election of Donald Trump who doesn't look like most nominees for the presidency or like a president. Um, that we've seen in the past. Um, obviously, that was his calling card, um, that he was, you know, different. Uh, and so I, I was wondering about oh, a couple of the assumptions that you saw some of these activists talking about that they were really sort of shocked by. 
that didn't make sense to them at that point. I mean, as political scientists, we look at this from a variety of different places. But when you're talking about the activists, they they're they're building on their own experience in politics. Yeah, um, you know, and I I had talked to. Um, you remember I talked early on with, uh, with a, you know, sort of a longstanding organizer in, in New Hampshire democratic politics, um, who, uh, you know, was repeating to me a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the folklore about, you know, how to win in the New Hampshire primary. You know, he, he says, basically you, you know, you, you have to, you know, if you're, if you want to really compete in the democratic presidential primary in New Hampshire, um, you avoid the big speeches. You have to spend a lot of time essentially going to coffee shops, going to people's living rooms, you know, just meeting one-on-one, you know, having, you know, activists open doors for you. And, um, you know, no one's going to even consider you until you've shaken their hand four or five times and talked with them over for an hour. Um, and, and then he mentions, oh, by the way, Donald Trump did none of that and he won anyway. Um, and that just... Um, that, that messed them up, right? They, you know, they were wondering if Trump's victory um, in in the Republican primary in New Hampshire and in some of these other contests meant that the old rules just didn't apply at all. Um, that is, if they had, you know, if, if these activists had essentially no gatekeeping power whatsoever and they, they really weren't the ones determining the nominee. And that was at least a, you know, a fear I had in starting this book and you know, I, I was making this assumption that the, you know, party activists in these early contest states, that the decisions they make will turn out to be important um, and and probably determinative of who the party nominates. But there was at least some chance that wasn't true, right? Coming out of 2016, there, there was some chance that essentially the party would decide on one thing and, and the voters would ultimately nominate someone completely different. Um, and, you know, either way, I figured that would be an interesting story. Um, but, you know, it was possible that my whole, you know, my whole approach would completely crash and burn. I, I don't think it did. Um, I don't think it did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, it was, it was interested in, in, in seeing how that would unfold because, you know, it's, it's, I love doing this research personally. Like, you know, I, I enjoyed spending a lot of time on the ground and, um, in New Hampshire and Iowa and South Carolina and, and Nevada and, and just getting a sense of these activists own conception of, of this contest and, and what has to happen in it. And, um, you know, they've, uh, you know, particularly in New Hampshire and Iowa, they have built up a, a whole infrastructure for understanding how their contest works. And they have, there's a lot of folklore around it. Um, and it's, it's important to them that these contests matter. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, they, you know, a lot of them are really enjoy this ritual of, of reporters and other and candidates and others, you know, kind of descending on their state and spending a lot of time there because they believe it matters. Um, they believe that that outcome matters. You know, the fact that um, New Hampshire and Iowa in particularly really didn't pick the nominee this time around um, is probably an important <laughs> lesson. And I, you know, I, I don't think we still have a full sense of what exactly that means. I, I, I think there were, um, important lessons that came out of that, but a lot of what was going on in the lead up to these early contests, you know, a lot of the discussions in late nine, uh, late 2019 and early 2020 among the candidates, among political reporters and others, and that this, this was such a huge and diverse presidential field. Um, you know, maybe the largely rural white voters of Iowa and New Hampshire, um, you know, maybe the decision they make would not be the one that would carry the day, um, that other parts of the party would also like a say in this. And in particular, you know, just sort of hanging over this was um, basically black voters in South Carolina who, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, South Carolina political leaders were saying for a long time, um, these folks need to weigh in, you know, black voters have an opinion here. They're a very, they're a large, you know, this is like 20 to 25% of democratic voters. Um, they, they have some opinions here. Um, and you know, if we're, if we're thinking about identity, if we're thinking about, um, the racial progress of this nation, uh, these people really want a chance to weigh in. And, you know, so 
that like, you know, whatever decision Iowa and New Hampshire make, it, it, it might not be enough. It might not be determinative. And, and, you know, interestingly, there was always this suggestion that Biden was probably going to do well, um, you know, particularly among black voters in South Carolina. And he got a lot of the, you know, um, support from South Carolina's black political establishment, you know, especially from, um, you know, representative Clymer and others. Um, and, uh, that ended up being a, a you know, pretty important argument and pretty persuasive that, you know, that this, this segment of the party really could not be ignored. And particularly the fact that there were several, um, several very high quality black candidates in the race. You had um, Kamala Harris running for a long time. You had Cory Booker running for a long time and, you know, doing reasonably well, at least for a while, um, but never really winning a substantial portion of, um, of support among um, black Democratic voters in South Carolina or elsewhere who were largely sticking with Joe Biden. You know, that just suggested to um, a lot of other voters that, okay, there, there's some strength here that, you know, going with Biden is not a complete abandonment of our, you know, this principle of egalitarianism that's really important to us because, um, you know, this segment of the party, you know, black voters in, in, in within the Democratic Party seems comfortable with Biden. They seem to feel that he's someone they could work with and who's someone who, who, who cares about their interests and that they, you know, that was an important part of the nomination. So after this um, four-year pursuit of understanding what the Democrats understood about 2016, what are you working on now, Seth? I mean, (laughs) I'm a little unsure at the moment. I I think a lot of that... You are disoriented. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of that will be determined by the outcome of the next election. Um, If... Uh, you know, if if the current polling in uh, for the 2020 presidential election is is turns out to be roughly accurate um, and Republicans lose, I would actually be fascinated to do a similar study of um, what happens among Republicans uh, in the wake of a presidential loss. Um, I th- I can imagine there would be, you know, you, you can sort of imagine, you know, some of the fights within the party. Um, coming out of a, of a presidential loss where, um, you, you know, th- I mean, there were some voices within the, within the Republican party coming out of their 2012 loss. If you, if you read that sort of that, that party's postmortem at the time, the, the GOP's, uh, the, the growth and opportunity project, um, uh, where, you know, some prominent members of the Republican national committee were coming up with this report saying we lost because, we alienated the immigrant communities. You know, we, we seemed, we were too hard line on immigration. We seemed racist. We seemed sexist. Um, we need to reach out to women. We need to reach out to people of color. Um, and we need people to, um, to think we're open. Um, um, and, and, uh, you know, not just, uh, you know, a, a party for older white men and, you know, obviously, you know, the party ended up not going in that direction in 2016. But I imagine there are, you know, voices within the party that would say, hey, maybe we need to rethink that. Um, and maybe, you know, go back to that solution and try not to alienate people because, you know, 2016 was, you know, we didn't necessarily have to win 2016 by just a hair. Um, and 2020, we didn't necessarily have to lose that either. You know, incumbent presidents rarely lose. Um, that that could have been managed better with a with a different president in power. Um, so there'd be that. There, I would certainly be a prominent pro-Trump uh, wing within the party uh, that would basically be arguing that 2020 was a fluke. Um, it was a pandemic that no one could see coming, and if not for that, um, you know, they would have they would have won handily. Yeah, I, I think the evidence is not really very supportive of that, considering Biden was already leading by a healthy margin before the pandemic even hit. But um, that would be a, you know, that would be an argument that some would find persuasive. And I think, you know, even if he loses, Donald Trump will still be a pretty substantial voice within the Republican coalition, and he'll still have his Twitter account. And um, regardless of how much he were to lose by, he would be claiming that he was somehow screwed out of a second term because of 
you know, some sort of voter fraud. So that you know, there'd be that wing of the party. You could see this this conversation unfolding and 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 playing out over a lot of different ways. It would. Um, so if I could, if there's a way for me to do that and start talking to Republican activists in some of these early contest states, um, you know, that would be amazing. Uh, but you know, the you know, given the pandemic and other things, you know, how that uh, you know how that research would unfold, I think would be would be a little different. But I, I I'd be curious to take that on. And you have the framework already of what you need to do, having done it once. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, I mean, if I were to do nothing else but just you know repeat this style, I, 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 I think I could have a pretty interesting story coming out of that. It's also possible, you know, they don't um, that the party doesn't try to recalibrate. I mean, you know, Democrats I think are always more prone to just feeling like um, they did everything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and needing to completely, you know, completely revamp what they are as a party. And, and, uh, I think Republicans have generally been more, more resistant to that message. Um, but you know, I think there's, you know, should they lose? I think there is a, there's a, a fascinating and probably pretty ugly fight, uh, potentially brewing within that party that, you know, if possible, I would love to be able to listen in on that. Well, if you if you end up writing that book, I hope you'll come and talk to me about it on the New Books Network once once it's published. I would love to do that. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Seth Maskett, author of Learning from Loss, The Democrats 2016 to 2020. This was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Um, I assume you can purchase it at the Cambridge University Press website. Any other place you'd like to give a shout out to, Seth? Yes, I would also mention that the Boulder Bookstore here in Colorado uh, has, uh, we had a nice book event for that last week, um, and I know they have copies in stock. They can be found at boulderbookstore.net. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on. It was great to talk to you.